G'day and welcome to the Reset Podcast. The first two episodes today are actually going to be the audiobook of Stress Teflon. My name is Luke Mathers and along with my colleague, neuroscientist Mick Selko, we've written a book to explain how humans got to be where we are and how we can use stress to our advantage. Everyone has issues with stress and I hope by understanding how our stress system works, we can get better at using it. Hope you enjoy Stress Teflon. Welcome to the audiobook of Stress Teflon. It's good being you when stress doesn't stick by Luke Mathers and Mick Zelko. I'd like to thank everyone in my tribe who have given me the confidence to write this book. To my beautiful wife, Karen, and daughter, Chloe, thank you for putting up with my ramblings. Thank you to Mick Zelko. Your ability to make difficult things simple has been crucial in bringing this book to life. Thanks also to Mike Protosolsis, my Greek ambassador, Greg Young, for making it a book that people would want to read, and to my editor, Matthew Godby, who organised my haphazard thoughts into something real. It's been fun. Section 1. Understanding how we tick and how we got to here. Goodbye, Cronk. A brief history of primal humans. Study the past if you would define the future. Confucius. The tribe was nearly silent as they stood shoulder to shoulder, huddled in a huge circle around a shallow grave. It was winter, a time when the cold seemed to make death a little bit more common than usual. Most wiped tears from their eyes and a quiet sniffling sometimes rose from the shivering mass. He was dead now, the brave leader they have loved and relied upon for so many years. In the pit, Kronk's body lay wrapped tightly in large leaves and two tiger fangs rested on his chest. Above them, positioned atop a granite boulder, jutting high and flat from the earth, was their new elder, Brack, and he began to speak. Today we have full stomachs and heavy hearts. The summer has been good to us. We're, we've had warm months and the hunting and fruit have been plentiful. The gods have smiled on us for many days, but today they have made us sad. The gods have decided that they need Kronk more than we do, and we trust in the wisdom of the gods. Tears made clear lines down the cheeks as he spoke, but Brack made no effort to wipe them away. He had just watched his mentor and oldest friend die. Now Brack only wanted the tribe, young and old, to know what an amazing man Kronk was, how important he had been to all of them. Kronk had seen many summers and had been a friend, father or teacher to everyone here. When we were small, all Kronk and I wanted to do was hunt. We would make spears so small that they would only kill birds. He was able to get closer to the birds than anyone else and never missed with a spear. Spears were always sharp and he would practice by throwing them at the high fruit in the trees. He learned to track from his father and he could follow every kind of creature for many days. As a young hunter, he was strong and fast, always sensing where to attack and when to defend. Even after a long day of tracking, he could creep up on an animal and run with it long enough to get his deadly spear to hit the mark. He loved coming home after a successful hunt too. He could single-handedly carry a boar for a whole day, and no one stood taller than a young cronk when he dropped the carcass in the middle of the camp. There was a real joy in Brack's voice as he talked about his friend. Something in his face and body too spoke louder than his words, the way he tightened and eased in the rhythm of his memories of his good friend. 
He continued, Everyone loved to be with Kronk and hear him tell of his hunting adventures. No one who was there will ever forget when a group came face to face with a lone tiger. Kronk stood between us and the fierce animal. As the giant tiger charged, he held his ground, threw his spear with all his might, and lanced the animal's heart as it bound forward. That night, we feasted on roasted tiger and retold the story over and over again. The magnitude of Kronk's bravery was not lost on everyone. He wore his tiger skin with great pride, and his two great teeth were always at his side. Brack paused for a moment, smiled to himself as he remembered a folk tale that he and Kronk had learned when they were kids, and then he went on. There are so many other stories we should know too, like the one about the four oxen that stood tail to tail so that any lion that came near would always be met by horns. The oxen grew big and strong until arguments split the four apart. Once they no longer stood tail to tail, the lions killed them one by one. Stories like this are what made Kronk our leader and made us realise that everyone is important and by doing our part and working together, we will all have full stomachs and a safe life. Everyone could feel the gratitude in Brack's voice as he talked about his old friend and the quiet sobs began to soften. The sullen faces in the crowd brightened now and hope and pride. He spoke his last words. In more recent time, Kronk found it hard to keep up with the young hunters. His bones were growing old and weary. He spent many days helping the young ones discover their skills, encouraging them with brave stories and telling them of the hunts of his youth. All the young hunters wanted to grow up and make Kronk proud of them. When it was time for them to become men, it was Kronk who led them out and told them his stories. Tomorrow we will leave this place, but it will always hold a special place in our hearts as we remember Kronk and give thanks for the lessons he has taught us. Lessons of skill, bravery, teamwork, love and caring. You will be missed, my friend. If you were writing a eulogy right now, did you kill a tiger? Something that frightened you immensely? Did you look after the kids as you got older? Would you pass away with the same reverence that Kronk did? Has your life touched people like his life did? We've all come a long way since the days when a scene like Kronk's funeral would have taken place, but were we really much different from the prehistoric versions of our present day self? Now, I know what you're thinking. How do I know so much about this Kronk bloke? Truth is, Kronk didn't write much stuff down but a century or so of genetics and anthropology research suggests that we know much more about the cronks of the past than we think we do. Our species have been evolving for hundreds of thousands of years. During that time, we have become the most well-adapted and influential species in Earth's history. At least we like to think so. We've learned how to thrive as a communal species rather than just survive in the wild, like our more primitive ancestors. We might have more or less started out hunkered down in caves and holes for protection, armed with little more than sticks and stones, but we have managed to build massive cities and weapons capable of destroying ourselves and just about everything else too. Our collective accomplishments and foresight are vital in the forward progress of our survival demands. But to better understand our body, our brains and our tribe, it pays to look backwards from time to time. We will learn a lot about modern life from Kronk. 
Whether you agree or disagree or even understand the intricate theories behind human evolution isn't that important. But there's an intersection of science, medicine, history and sociology that will help us get a handle on why we do what we do. The modern world is rapidly changing. Technology has made us more connected than ever before, and the stress of staying competitive and happy in a time where productivity is more likely to be measured on a digital spectrum than a human one is at times overwhelming. But understanding our primal traits, we can get better at handling stress, modernising our instincts, and thus strengthening every facet of our lives, from health to attitude to career and to relationships. If you thought this was supposed to be a book about everyday people but find yourself feeling like you've stepped into the wrong class, don't worry, you're in the right place. This isn't a paleontology thesis by any means, and if it were, we'd be in trouble. I'm certainly not your go-to expert for the latest news on fossil digs, genome discoveries and the like. We'll leave that to people much smarter than I am. If you hadn't figured it out already, I'm just a regular guy with a regular life, a small business owner, husband and father. I've watched some people thrive in times of stress and I've seen others be debilitated by it. But when I found myself 25 years into my chosen career, I stopped, had a look around and got curious. Why do some people handle everything that's thrown at them and others don't? I've spent the last several years researching human instincts and behaviour to try and understand why. At our most primal, every living person has the same basic needs. Shelter, food and water. Maybe throw in sex too, just to ensure the species survives. That's it. Just three or four things. Sounds easy, right? But of course, it's not really that simple. Survival was a little more complicated for Kronk and his tribe than a cave, a hunk of meat, and a bit of water all those thousands of years ago. And it's certainly much more complicated for us today. Our safety from predators and disease, our innate need to feel that we contribute and are part of a tribe, our biological instinct to reproduce, they are all equally important to us both now and then. Not only for our survival, but to be able to thrive once we do. Driving that desire to thrive is the instinctual fear that we have of our own extinction. As a result, we focus on the negatives of our experience more than the positives to ensure that we learn and advance accordingly. We want to avoid repeating painful experiences, which means we're always searching for easier ways to exist. Finding a mate and gaining acceptance and respect in our tribe depend in part on how we look and carry ourselves. Of course, none of our aesthetics will matter if disease is going to kill us before we even get a chance to flaunt them in the first place. So while our environment may change over time, as we move from, say, the jungles to the single bar or the boardroom, our primal instincts remain the same. Find shelter, find water, find food and find a mate. Protect your tribe and then you will have done what you've been put here to do. But as our environment grows more civil, more convenient, and more elaborate, it also becomes more difficult for our primal instincts to navigate. When that happens, the confusion between instinct and invention, natural and unnatural, causes a lot of chronic stress in our lives. Much of that stress is generated in our own heads. For Kronk, danger was readily apparent. Even though his survival required constant alertness and quick, well-executed reaction, the threat 
was at least fairly easy to spot. After all, you can mistake a tree for a lion a hundred times and you're okay. Mistake a lion for a tree, however, and you're no longer contributing to evolution. This is why we tend to focus on the negatives. This is why we all have a negative bias that we need to be aware of. But for us, the lion is often something in our own mind's making. And it's something that's much more subtle than an actual lion, a threat or a fear buried beneath thousands of years of social evolution. The only way to slay the lion now is to understand who we are then, back when our primal ways determined our very survival. You can begin by asking three simple questions when you're faced with a threat or a problem. The three questions are, what am I thinking? Why am I thinking it? And is it helping? I like to think of these three questions as a three-part eudaimonia quiz, a rational decision-making process we'll explore in the coming chapters. Chapter two, modern day tigers. Helen Keller said, walking with a friend in the dark is better than walking alone in the light. The story of Kronk slaying the tiger is a fantastic way of looking at stress in all its life-saving glory. But since there are very few tigers wandering around suburbia in the 21st century, I want to share with you a modern story about tigers of a different kind. It was a warm November morning in Queensland, a common forecast in Australia's sunshine state. I was driving my daughter Chloe to school when I got a phone call from one of my best friends, Sean Shaky Stevens. After the usual pleasantries and a quick warning that we were on loudspeaker, Sean's tone of voice changed. Mate, I've got some bad news, he said. Shaky, it should be noted, isn't just a good mate, he's also my accountant. That combination will present new depths of fear when the single phrase, I've got bad news, is uttered. Even deeper anxieties when your daughter is listening on an otherwise routine morning drive. I felt my heart creeping up into my throat. Over the previous six months, we'd had to deal with a lot of issues surrounding the selling of one of my businesses. And I knew this had to be the potential to be much worse than Sean calling to cancel dinner plans. I swallowed hard and could immediately feel my heart starting to race as I blurted out the first thing that came into mind. For fuck's sake, Shaky, I've paid enough fucking tax. I'm not paying any more tax. I bellowed, my warnings of loudspeakers and 13-year-old daughters now a distant memory. I'm not paying any more fucking tax. Hold on, big fella, Sean said calmly. It's not always about you. His words shook me a little bit. He was right. I'd assumed that the news was somehow all about me. I felt like a complete arsehole, and I could almost feel myself flush with embarrassment as Sean went on to tell me about the recent troubling development from another friend of ours, Craig, or Ragsy as everyone officially calls him. In fact, I'd known Ragsy for five years before I knew his actual name. Rags, it turned out, had just been diagnosed with a brain tumour. The details of the tumour were still a bit sketchy, but he had lost his sense of smell and was getting severe headaches. My tax issues all forgotten, I felt a much different tightening in my stomach and a lump in my throat. I didn't have a lot of experience with close friends getting life-threatening illnesses, so my immediate response was to investigate what I could do to help. There was a sense of helplessness that came over me after Sean and I hung up. I had recently been doing a lot of research on brain biology, and the loss of smell symptoms really concerned me. 
The olfactory bulb, the part of the brain responsible for smell, lies deep in the limbic system of the human brain. It's a really old school part of your mind and it's not a good place to go digging around with brain surgery. The tightness in my stomach remained as I dropped Chloe to school and rather unconvincingly assured her that rags would be okay. When we talk about caveman worries, this is one of them. This is life and death, and the thought of losing a good friend before the age of 50 was not a real comfortable one. If it was stressful for us, imagine how poor Ragsy was feeling. Whether we know it or not, we all crave a kind of stability or homeostasis within our minds and bodies, an instinctual need for stability, health, and well-being rules most of our thoughts and actions on a daily basis. As I drove out of the school that day, I was a long way from feeling homeostasis and not at all comfortable about it. Tightness in the stomach and a lump in the throat are both stress responses associated with our fight or flight reflex, a survival instinct controlled by the older parts of our brain. The fact that we are not in direct danger from, say, a tiger attack does not change the reflexes release of stress hormones. Sean's news had triggered the same response in me. So with stress hormones pumping through my body, I felt tense and I felt jittery. I needed to get some sort of control over the situation and decrease my discomfort. It may sound like cheap advice, but deep breathing is one of the best ways to take control of your fear response. When faced with a threat, whether it's real or perceived, you can't take long, slow, deep breaths while you're running away from a tiger. I was fortunate and remembered that tactic just in time. <sighs> Several deep breaths later, my heart rate began to slow and I could start to think straight again. My brain had moved focus away from panic and on to helping my friend. None of my friends know more about brains than Mick Zelko, my co-author here. He's not a doctor, but he's doing his PhD in cognitive neuroscience and his ability to explain complex things really simply. I got straight on the phone with him and explained Rags's predicament. Sharing my concern about the smell symptoms, Mick went into research mode. Within 20 minutes, he had come up with the most likely cause, a meningioma. Meningiomas are tumours that grow on the meninges or the fluid-filled sac that surrounds our brain. They can grow quite large before eliciting any symptoms and are usually not fatal. If you're going to have a brain tumour, this is the one you want. Because they are on the outside of the brain, meningiomas are generally quite treatable with surgery and rarely return, which meant that the prognosis for Ragsy was really good. The next day, we got a phone call from Ragsy confirming Mick's suggested diagnosis. Surgery was booked for that day and the offending tumour was removed. When I walked into Ragsy's hospital room a few days later, I found a sense of relief was palpable. Surrounded by family and friends, he sat up in the bed and everyone else in the room talked about how scared they were at the prospect of losing a friend, a dad, a husband, a son, a brother, and so on. It's an interesting choice of word, scared. No one else was in danger. No one else had a big bald patch and a scar on the back of their head like Ragsy's did. But we were all scared. The prospect of losing a loved one triggered the same response as being in danger ourselves. All the visitors bought gifts, magazines or books, not because they had to, but because they wanted to do something to help. 
A couple of sporting magazines and some Ferrero Rochers were the closest we could get to helping Ragsy slay his tiger. When I visited Rags a few days later on a quiet Wednesday, it was great for just the two of us to have a chat without the hordes of well-wishers. He opened up about how scared he was at the prospect of a life cut short. It wasn't the thought of dying that scared him, though. Only the good die young, he joked. It was the thought of how his wife Jocelyn and his two teenage kids, Tyson and Kiana, would have handled life without him. It's good to be needed and it's nice to be loved. I just have to hang around and be there for them now. That's what I care about, Ragsy said. Five months later, we celebrated Ragsy's 50th. We had nearly lost him at 49, so the joy in the air had an extra element to it. The tribe was intact and we were all happier for it. Chapter 3. Old Brain versus New Brain Albert Einstein said, Look deep into nature and you will understand everything better. Some years ago, when my family and I were vacationing in Hawaii, I found myself stopped at an intersection while driving around the North Shore, a relatively rural region of the Pacific Island state. The place is famous for great surfing locations and infamous for overzealous locals dedicated to protecting their island from tourists. In the eyes of residents there, the island is their island and everyone else is an intruder. Locals are known to be territorial and a kind of pissing contest is easy to spark for any number of unwritten infractions. I wasn't thinking about that fact when a driver behind me began aggressively blowing his horn as we waited for traffic to clear at an intersection. I couldn't go anywhere and as any good Australian will know, if someone is being an idiot, you are obliged to tell them to pull their head in. My reaction to the road raging goose behind me was to flip him the bird and proceed on my way without giving it another thought. A little way down the road, however, I checked my rearview mirror and the driver behind me was going off his chops. For the next few miles afterwards, the driver, now totally enraged, sped within inches of our rented convertible while appearing to have a spasm and shouting every curse word imaginable at me. We pulled into a place called Polynesian World and the big empty car park made us feel like the Griswolds from National Lampoon's Vacation because we were about an hour early. I parked the convertible and this crazy man followed us and parked a few spots away. He hopped out of his truck and drew a machete, a machete from under the bench seat behind him where his three kids were sitting and came charging towards our car. I froze and kept myself calm by repeating, he's just scaring the tourist, he's just scaring the tourist, he's just scaring the tourist. And I managed to keep calm and apologise for my offending finger, a bit like Goose in Top Gun. When he grabbed the driver's seat behind my shoulder, seemingly intent in, on teeing off on my head, while my wife said firmly, take your hands off my husband. With that, the man looked at my wife and then at my daughter in the back seat and backed off. He calmed a bit and then suddenly looked at me as a dad and a husband. He saw me as a person, not just as an arsehole tourist with an uncontrollable middle finger. In his view, I was being disrespectful. Not only that, but he also said that I was setting a bad example for my child. He was right. Flipping the bird is a bad example for my daughter. I'm not sure he was the best one to be giving parenting advice. His three kids had a front row seat to his tantrum and their eyes were fixed on him about to go at the tourist with a machete. 
But then again, this wasn't my environment and I wasn't a member of his tribe. We had different rules. Nonetheless, something else happened between us. Despite our differences in rationale and temperament, the angry driver at the time of his outburst was being completely controlled by a different brain from the one controlling him before my wife had made him aware that he was going to attack a husband and father. She made him realise his reaction was over the top and he saw reason. When you talk about stress, having a rampant territorial Hawaiian coming at you with a machete is up there on the list of stressful situations. In this chapter, we're going to look at the brain and how it's evolved to handle stress and help us determine where the stress originated. Millions of years of evolution have seen the human brain develop like an onion in layers. There are a bunch of areas in the brain that I'm not going to bore you with. Scientific jargon like dorsal anterior geniculate, hippocampus, amygdala and cerebellum. These aren't necessary for our purpose, but there's a brain box included here if you're interested. I'm not a neurobiologist. I'm just a simple bloke and for the purposes of this book, we're going to split the brain into two parts the old brain and the new brain. The old brain is directly linked to the spinal cord and is the reactive part of our brain. The old brain is essentially where reflex responses arise, where repetitive routines are stored and where our primal attributes are remembered. It's sometimes called the reptilian brain or old mammalian brain and the most basic mechanism left over from our primary ancestors. Your old brain is great at keeping you alive. Superbly evolved, it quickly and automatically detects threats in our environment and then triggers a cascade of nerve impulses and brain chemicals that enable you to do something about it. Before you even know it, you've jumped five feet, turned and run away. Or like Kronk, you've expertly speared a tiger in the heart. The problem though is that in becoming so optimised at keeping you alive, the old brain has made a few trade-offs. First, it's negatively biased. It will focus on the negative, life-threatening possibilities before it sees the positive options. This means you are much more likely to perceive something non-threatening as threatening rather than the reverse. Secondly, your old brain's detection system isn't very nuanced. It doesn't have a grading system for scaling threats. Things are seen as either black or white. Situations you face are either classified as threatening or not threatening, without any mild threatening settings in between. Finally, your old brain's response system is similarly not very nuanced. The fight or flight response is either on if there's a threat or it's off if there's not. The first makes sense. In an uncertain world, you're better off jumping out of the way of a snake than not jumping out of the way of a snake. It makes sense as speed accuracy trade-offs. Don't waste precious time working out how bad a situation or how fully to respond. If it's bad, go and go hard. The old brain has no ability to use language. When you have a gut feeling about something, it has nothing to do with your digestive system. It's all old brain. Gut feeling is a way to describe it because without words, we can't explain why we feel how we do. We just feel it. The old brain looks at the world as good or bad and reacts accordingly. We've had an old brain longer than we've had language, so the old brain is really good at reading people's body language. It is not so good at understanding their words. 
Ever met someone and thought, eh, he feels dodgy? That's your old brain reacting to the subtle cues that person is giving off and the way he holds himself. Intuitive people are very good at listening and interpreting what the old brain feels. My wife has an amazing bullshit radar. She can easily spot someone whose words and body language don't correlate. She doesn't know why she gets these feelings, but I've learned over our 20 plus years together to listen to her gut feeling. Her old brain is usually a pretty good judge. Most animals live their lives entirely ruled by their old brain because it's all they have. It's why your placid, friendly dog might viciously snap at you if you get too close while he's eating. The great thing about being human, though, is that we have this amazing new brain sitting on top of the old one that's able to monitor what's going on and modulate our responses accordingly. It's called cognitive control, and it enables us to assess the situation, realize that we're not about to die, and formulate a plan to deal with the situation and calm things down. The new brain is a supervisor. It's slow, but it's smart, nuanced and powerful. The new brain can plan, understand shades of gray and has evolved in a complex social environment to protect you from the old brain. As the supervisor, the new brain should be checking to see if the interpretations and the responses of the old brain are reasonable and appropriate. That doesn't mean the new brain is more important or better than the old brain. Both are essential for survival, just in different ways. We need the old brain for emotions and survival instincts, and we need the new brain to mediate what to use from the old brain and when. Our Hawaiian encounter was the result of the old brain taking over the enraged driver's new brain. He had perceived a threat, and his old brain had taken control to neutralise that threat. Lucky for me, his new brain regained control just in time to save me from a close encounter with a machete. This concept of two parts of the brain staying connected is the key to understanding stress. The interaction between your old and new brain is crucial to both understanding stress and how to get better at dealing with it and using it to your advantage. Just as my initial reaction to my accountant friend telling me he had bad news, the old brain has a tendency to take over in the modern world when it isn't beneficial. It gets confused and reverts to our primal state. In both situations, a few deep breaths and some cooler heads will save the day. Once the old brain calms, the new brain is able to say, it's okay, we're fine, why don't you let me take this one? With that, rational decision-making takes over, shirt collars are released, and everyone carries on to make smarter choices. Had my Hawaiian mate had a true threat, the old brain would have stayed in command, instincts would have gone full throttle, and someone would have got bloodied. Most likely me. I'm a city boy, but my wife and I decided to explore some of the remote areas of Tasmania, a little island off the coast of Australia. We had heard that a 10-mile hike up a well-worn trail would take us to a beautiful waterfall called Montezuma's Falls. So we drove out to the remote car park and prepared for our day's adventure. I slipped on my brand new hiking boots and I used a box worth of band-aids on the heels and toes to keep my feet from looking like bubble wrap at the end of the day. I put sunbreak on my face, threw a few water bottles into my backpack and headed into the wild. I felt like Steve Irwin, confident and ready for anything, or so I thought. 
As it turns out, the trail was actually a defunct railway track. And we started walking along the old tracks. I found it impossible not to think of the movie Stand By Me. Before long, Kara and I were whistling and singing songs and balancing ourselves on the railway track like a couple of kids out to explore some alluring mystery. About 200 yards down the railway track, still within sight of the car, I heard a scream and felt myself jump backwards. The scream was my own. I mean, this was a blood-curdling, high-pitched squeal that surprised even me. As if that wasn't embarrassing enough, I had jumped backwards without even knowing it and grabbed my wife, Karen, pulling her backwards with me. I had no idea why. All I heard was a really girly scream, mine, and looked down to see a large black snake on the path right in front of me. This particular snake is one of the five most dangerous snakes in the world, and there it was right in our path. My heart started beating at 100 miles an hour, and I struggled to get enough air in. Once I was clear of the danger, I could only stare at the snake. It took me another few minutes to get my breathing and heart rate under control and actually calm down. My old brain had reacted instantly to deal with the threat, and I wasn't even totally aware of it yet. It had sent me flying back into protective mode long before I had any idea that there was a deadly snake in front of me, and I might just be alive today because of it. In certain situations, your old brain is a really good thing and should be allowed to act on its own, but once the old brain identifies and reacts an immediate threat, you need to allow your new brain to assess the situation and find a proper solution. In my case, the old brain's immediate response was, oh, this is bad, the car is right there, let's go. But once the new brain kicked in, I had more rational thoughts. Well, I'm at a safe distance. The snake is just warming itself in the open sunlight and isn't very interested in us. I'm sure the whole place isn't covered with brown snakes. Let's just stay vigilant and keep going instead. I had reconnected my two brains and thought it through. I was still on edge as my stress response had triggered a rush of adrenaline in my body. But I was calm enough to make a decision to forge ahead. Karen and I walked around the tanning snake and went on to see the beautiful falls. We had a lovely walk and really enjoyed our time walking along the old railway track in Tasmania, snakes and all, thanks to my new brain being strong enough to stay linked and integrated with our reactive old brains. This interaction between the old brain and the new brain is constantly at play. These regions talk to each other endlessly as we shop for groceries, drive the car, work and communicate. The better each of our regions is at deciding who's in charge and when, the closer we are to achieving what's known as vertical integration. Vertical integration for our purposes is really a functional working relationship between our old brain and new brain. The 1983 movie Trading Places with Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy provides us with a great illustration of vertical integration at work. The movie tells the story of a born and bred upper class commodities broker, Lewis Winthrop III, played by Dan Aykroyd, switching lives with a destitute street hustler, Billy Ray Valentine, played by Eddie Murphy. The result of a slightly sadistic social experiment carried out by two billionaire brothers with opposing view on the ongoing nature versus nurture debate. When we meet the main characters, they're both comfortable in their respective worlds, on both opposite ends of the social hierarchy. 
Winthrop enjoys his days playing racquetball at the club, managing his stable stocks, and whining and dining at his luxurious mansion with his fiancée. Valentine, on the other hand, spends his days trying to con strangers for change and navigating his way through the very real line between legal and illegal. Both handle stress in their lives with ease. But after the meddling brothers enact their plan to frame Winthrop for fraud and hire Valentine to take his place, the pair's life quickly turned upside down. All of a sudden, everything they used to know and be able to depend upon was gone. For better or worse, both Winthrop and Valentine were thrown in a loop, finding themselves overwhelmed by stress and confusion over whom and what to trust and whom or what to avoid. By integrating their old and new brains, the boys found solutions and managed to use the stressful situation to their advantage. In a familiar, safe environment, we get lazy. Our brains are well accustomed to our surrounding conditions, so deciphering a threat and a non-threat occurs very quickly, often subconsciously. In other words, we let our guard down and our new brain, the supervisor, gets lazy. Like Winthrop and Valentine after they'd been flung into their new lives, intense stress surfaces when the brain doesn't understand the new environments. Everything seems like a threat and our old brain takes control to protect us. It's fight and flight all the time. That type of stress is not good for long periods. It makes us defensive and if we're fighting for survival, the new brain goes offline, focusing us on finding problems blocking our rational new brain from finding solutions. In short, constant toxic stress makes us defensive and it makes us dumb. How we are wired. When we look at how the brain works, we have to look at neural pathways and how our brains are wired. There are about 100 billion neurons in the average human brain and each one is connected to thousands of others, creating literally trillions of neural pathways. Some of these pathways are short, some are long, some are weak, and some are strong. And it is the activity in these pathways, the neurons talking to each other, that creates all of our thoughts, behaviours, and actions. I like to think of neural pathways as being like paths in a sand dune. Your natural way of walking to the beach is on the most well-worn path. It's possible to walk over the other parts of the dune, but it's more difficult. Humans are a bit like electricity and water. We will take the path of least resistance. Habits are our brain's way of sticking to the well-worn paths. We think a certain way because we've always thought a certain way. When people say things like, I've always had a bad temper, they're saying that the pathways between their old and new brain aren't very well-worn. The integration between old and new brains isn't a habit for them. The good thing is you can make new paths in the sand dunes. You just have to consciously walk on a different direction to make new paths. It takes more effort, but it's possible. You have to decide to keep your two brains integrated and have a better way of working out who's in charge for any given circumstance. You have to make this a habit. The great thing about sand dunes and neural pathways is that every time you make yourself take a new, better path, it becomes a little more worn until one day the new path is the most well-worn one and you don't even realise you're taking it. Don't look now, but you've created a new habit. So it's not so much what you think, it's how you think that matters. 
Integrating the old brain and the new brain, smoothing out the communication between the regions, you can process true threats more accurately and make better decisions about how to react to them. Which means that with good vertical integration between your old brain and new brain, you won't be ready to behead a tourist in front of his family over a hand gesture and you'll avoid deadly snakes. Although doing it without squealing like a little girl and stumbling would be nice too. Where does stress come from? Now that we understand the concepts of new brain and old brain, I want to look at where stress comes from. In the snake story, the stress came from our external environment. The old brain dealt with it quickly and saved the day. This type of stress is short-term, in and out, and is a life-saving reaction to our environment. Kronk had heaps of these types of stress, and evolution ensured that we were really good at dealing with it. A new brain is where our rational thinking comes from, and is supposed to help. But if we have this amazing new brain that can talk us off the ledge, why do we persist in reacting to manageable modern-day stresses as if they were life-threatening tigers coming at us? The problem isn't a failure to stop the old brain from reacting, because you can't, nor is it a problem of not engaging your new brain. All you've been doing is thinking about this. The problem is that your new brain is monitoring the wrong thing. Rather than assessing the actual external situation and determining you're not going to die and you can handle this, your new brain is assessing the internal feelings, the fight or flight response already initiated by the much faster automatic old brain and determining that you're, oh my God, my heart's racing, I have a pit in my stomach and I'm petrified, holy crap, this must be bad. Your new brain has been hijacked by the old brain's initial response. So instead of calming things down, it tells the old brain to keep going. The fight or flight response continues, and because the new brain assesses the reaction as bad, it tells the old brain to keep going until your brain is in an out-of-control feedback loop. Before you know it, a manageable situation leads to overreactions and then to rumination. You're rolling these things around in the head even though it's not helpful. This turns a beneficial acute stress into a harmful chronic stress and crippling anxiety or a full-blown panic attack. Where did stress come from with Machete Man in Hawaii? My uncontrollable middle finger was hardly a threat to life and limb, yet his old brain went into overdrive starting a fight response and rage ensued. This type of stress starts in the new brain, which then fires up the old. There is a problem with this type of stress. It lacks perspective. If your stress originates in your new brain and not as a result of an external threat, the stress can occur at any time for any reason. The new brain fires up a stress response in the old one and then the new brain rationalizes the physical reactions from the old brain and you end up in a feedback loop of stress. For Kronk, there was an external threat or there wasn't. He either dealt with the situation or got mauled to death. The threat was external and it was short-lived. This is how we've evolved. We are really good at this type of stress. An antelope will run like the wind to escape a lion. Once safe, though, the antelope will casually go back to chowing down on grass as if everything was okay. Antelopes don't have a new brain to keep the stress going. The problem is that most modern stresses are different. 
They are new brain generated. And as such, they are always there whenever you think about a what-if scenario. What if I can't pay the rent? What if I fail this exam? What if I lose my job? This is where anxiety comes from. Anxiety is the new brain creating thoughts that generate an old brain stress response and causes thoughts to ruminate between your two brains. My wife, Karen, calls this renting a room in your head for free. As we said, stresses come from the external environment or they can come from your new brain thinking of something stressful. Either way, the old brain will fire up with a physical and emotional response. This point is critical to becoming stressed Teflon. This is the fork in the stress road. You have to recognize when you're at the fork and engage your new brain to take the high road. The high road is rational and thoughtful and finds solutions. The stress high road ensures that the situation is looked at objectively and your two brains remain integrated. The low road is where the old brain is fired up and the new brain reacts to the symptoms. I feel nervous. My heart's pounding. Oh no, this must be bad. This type of reaction is the new brain being lazy. It also then feeds more stress into the old brain and amplifies its reaction. This is the stress feedback loop. And there's a picture of this in the book if you, if you have the hard copy of it. This type of stress is, is part of the reason 18% of the population suffers from anxiety or worse still, panic attacks. This is not all bad. You just have to catch yourself heading down the low road and engage your new brain to solve the problems and not add fuel to the fire. Think of this as your stress Teflon off-ramp, your way to avoid the feedback loop and find your way to a place where rational thinking helps solve your problems rather than amplifying them. The fork in the stress road. The psychiatrist and author Daniel Siegel outlines in his book Mindsight, the hand model of the brain. I've adapted this a little bit to show you a really simple way to look at how our brains function. If you can imagine, there's a picture of this in the book, but you can do it with your hands now. If you make a fist with your left hand and then place your palm of your right hand on the top of the fist, and we're going to do a little exercise. If your right hand's sitting on the top of your left fist, If you push down with your right hand, it creates a lot of tension through your shoulders and chest, right? This is what happens when your new brain is generating the stress, and it causes a lot of that tension. Now, if we do it the other way, so keep the right hand on the top, now lift your fist up, and you'll feel that that tension disappears. That's what happens when your new brain solves problems. So your new brain can either create tension in your old one or it can solve problems. And that's the choice, and that's the way what happens at the fork in the stress road. Long-term anxiety is toxic stress and needs to be kept in check. The new brain needs to take control, stop the feedback loop, and assess the situation from a rational and logical point of view. Unchecked anxiety causes health problems, unhappiness, and misery. These can be prevented by fully engaging your new brain to put the issues into perspective. So if you make your brain model with your hands again, this time gently pull upwards with your right hand. The tension in your chest disappears, and by using your new brain to find solutions rather than creating problems, you decrease unwanted stress. 
put things into perspective and go down the fork in the stress road all the way to attaining eudaimonia and becoming stress Teflon. How do we do this? We all know that telling yourself to calm down doesn't work. Telling someone in an emotional state to calm down has the same effect of baptizing a cat. It doesn't work. It never ends well. The old brain is in full-on reactive mode, amplified by a misdirected new brain, and neither are going to simply calm down because you say so. If the new brain is going to change its mind, it needs good reasons to do so. And the way to do that is to divert it from thinking about how you feel to thinking about the actual situation. You need to consciously assess the stressor. First, a few deep breaths are always a great way to engage the fight and flight response's other half, the relaxation response. You can't take long, slow, deep breaths if you're being chased by a tiger. Deep breathing will take the edge off and allow you to move your thoughts from how you feel to actually what's going on and assessing the situations rather than assessing your reactions. Next, ask questions. Remember the old brain has no language. By asking yourself questions, you have to engage your new brain. Asking yourselves our three, three-part eudaimonia quiz. What am I thinking? Why am I thinking it? And is it helping? Answering these three simple questions truthfully will give you perspective as these questions engage your supervising new brain and can solve any problem rationally. In really emotional situations, if these three questions don't do the trick and get the new brain logical, you need a backup plan. We know that the old brain doesn't have the capacity for language, so it definitely can't do maths. To get the new brain on board, ask yourself on a scale of 1 to 10, where 1 is a minor irritation and 10 is completely horrible, how bad is the current situation? Be really honest. Think about other really bad things. Think about other not so bad things. Think about how things you've stressed about before have turned out. Think about how likely each of your imagined outcomes really is. Think about how bad this thing will really be in a month or three months or a year. Come up with a number and then think about it again. Is it a really reasonable number? If you're above an eight and no one is dying, you're not assessing very well. Now, rate your response to the following questions on a scale of one to 10. How bad do I feel? How much mental energy am I allocating to this situation? Is your response right now affecting your sleep, relationships, enjoyment, and health? Are your situation numbers and your reaction numbers the same? Now just quietly think about those numbers for a bit. Repeat as necessary and calm the hell down. Now, 1 to 10 ratings might sound trivial or flippant, but the process does a number of things. First, it distracts your new brain from focusing on how you feel right now and thereby breaking at least temporarily the feedback loop driving your fight and flight response. Second, it diverts the new brain to assess the actual situations rather than your feelings, as it should have done in the first place. Most importantly, it gives your new brain a reason that it came up with itself for turning the old brain down. It's not just telling myself to calm down. I've assessed the situation and rationally determined that it's a three whilst my response is clearly a seven. 
Not only that, now that I think about it, I can deal with this. Your new brain needs reasons to do things. Sometimes it'll accept bad reasons over good ones, but it hates doing things simply because you said so. Chapter 4, Mind Awareness. John Milton wrote in Paradise Lost, The mind is its own place, and in itself can make heaven of hell and hell of heaven. Buddha once was asked what he gained from meditation. His response might surprise you. He said, nothing. However, let me tell you what I lost. He lost anger, anxiety, depression, insecurity, fear of old age, and death. Science has shown the benefit of meditation, and Buddha is right. It does all of those things. The problem is most of us are terrible at meditation. In the modern world of constant information overload and multitasking, being able to clear and reset the brain is a really valuable skill. I've tried to meditate and clear my mind completely. I've even bought relaxation CDs and that play sounds like dolphins farting and waterfall mist. These either make me want to remember TV episodes of Flipper of the 1970s or make me want to pee. I never managed to get meditation right. If I try to, cue a slow coming voice, imagine a tranquil lake. Before I know it, there are people surfing, bikini-clad women on the beach, and a pair of long par fives with a golf green at at the lake's edge. I'm no good at meditation. After reading Daniel Siegel's book, Mindsight, I sort of adapted a different way of looking at meditation that gets rid of the you're not doing it right part. It's kind of like mindfulness, but I can't bring myself to use the word mindfulness. There's, there's too many images of soap-dodging hippies polluting our ears with dodgy renditions of Kumbaya. For the purposes of this book, and in the interest of becoming stressed Teflon, we're going to stay hippie-free, and from now on, we're going to call it Mind Awareness. Every morning when I wake up, I have five to 10 minutes of mind awareness. Now, you don't have to do anything special. You just lie however you're comfortable and breathe in through your nose and out through your mouth. <sighs> nice and deep. As we said in chapter two, deep breathing relaxes the old brain and allows your mind to go wherever it pleases. Don't restrain your thoughts. Just be aware of them. Don't, don't judge them or find solutions to problems. Let them come freely, and when they do, reflect on them one by one by simply acknowledging them, that you don't have to do anything. Just whatever you think, acknowledge it, and then concentrate on your breathing again. It's just that easy. Try it. For the next two weeks, spend the first five minutes after you wake up breathing deeply in through your nose, getting any tension out of your system, and allowing the thoughts to come and go. Don't consciously judge them because remember, your old brain will judge things anyway. Resist that urge. Turn off the old brain and just let the thoughts come through. Let them wander in one way and play around as long as they want and then see what what else comes into your brain. By spending five minutes doing that every morning, you will get stronger at identifying your dominant thoughts. You'll get better at understanding why you're having those thoughts and whether they're helping. This process helps you identify your dominant thoughts and put them into perspective rather than letting them ruminate in your subconscious and renting a room in your head for free. We're hardwired, after all, to keep ruminating until we work out a problem. Mind awareness is about understanding what you're thinking. 
It's only after you understand what you're thinking that you begin to look at why you're thinking it and if it's helping. We're talking about how the brain thinks and how we perceive our reality as a result. As I touched on in the last chapter, the old brain can bully a weak and underused new brain. The new brain is the supervisor. It has to make sure the old brain is kept in check. By simply stopping to take stock of the situation, mind awareness allows the new brain to look at things rationally and then search for solutions. What mind, mind awareness also does, it makes us not react to things. So when, when things come up that are stressful in everyday life, we don't react to them and it creates those pathways of calm that we talked about in the last chapter. When people get in a rut, they can grow more accepting of the old brain dictating what happens. They are being reactive. This can lead to helplessness, apathy and depression. The correct type of stress can reverse this. Starting a new project, switching jobs, or learning a new skill can be stressful, but these actions can get you out of your comfort zone and take you down the good fork in in the stress road. In the words of the philosopher Taylor Swift, shake it off. If you don't like how things are going, do something. As the old line goes, if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got. You need stress to get yourself out of a rut. Rain the brain, linking the old and new brains together. Once you have an emotional reaction, whether it's a panic attack, a heated argument, or a moment of intense grief, your old brain is going to take over until you do something that tells it to stop. In the hand model, it's like taking the top hand off and letting the old brain have free reign. That, that's n- not a bad thing when you're in a situation that warrants it, like a Tasmanian snake situation. It's a matter of life and death. Lightning fast action is required, and that's exactly when you want your old brain steering the ship. What happens if your old brain steers the ship for too long? If your old brain dominates, the new brain will eventually come back online, but rather than providing the practical wisdom you need for eudaimonia, the new brain simply finds a way to explain the old brain's reactions. In the Hawaiian road rage incident, my errant finger triggered a response in Machete Man's old brain that said he was under threat. The new brain then ra- then rationalised the reaction, amplified the old brain's reaction, and made it okay to reach for a machete, and our island friend was stuck in the stress fee- feedback loop. Killing tourists isn't something that would normally align with his inner values, so somehow the new brain needed to regain control. Fortunately, his new brain kicked in, and when he saw me as a husband and father, he found a way to exit the loop before blood, mostly mine, was shed. To put it another way, let's say you're having an argument in which you decided to say something that's unkind and hurtful. Being mean and hurtful is something that you would not deliberately do. The reason you do something that's not in line with your inner values is because your new brain has been bullied by your old brain into believing it's under siege. Suddenly, irrational thoughts and justifications spring to mind, like, well, they did it to me, so I'm going to do this to them. Doing something you know is wrong and out of character is stressful. Your, your brain will need to find a way to justify it. My mum used to say, two wrongs don't make a right. I think everyone's mum said that, and they're right. Doing something you know you shouldn't is an example of cognitive dissonance, that regret-laced time bomb that has a lot to do with a lack of mind awareness. We're going to have a larger look at 
cognitive dissonance and self-deception in chapter nine. When your old brain has taken over during a false alarm and has dumped loads of stress hormones into your system to engage the fight or flight response and regret is usually not far behind. Your rational new brain simply can't think clearly while you're in the middle of a full-on stress response. So your old brain is called into action as a default. As we've said, the old brain focuses on the negative and is defensive and dumb. When this happens, you have to regain control or else you will wake up in a blind rage in hospital, in jail, unemployed or divorced. The biggest tool to help you rein your old brain is breathing and mind awareness. As soon as you inhale and take a nice, big, calm breath, your body is telling your brain to relax. No, we've got this. Everything is under control. We're not being chased by anything nasty. Life is not under threat. You can't take big, deep breaths if you're being chased by a tiger and your life is under threat. It's not going to happen. If those tigers are imagined, you can take a few deep breaths and those deep breaths will often be all you need to get your head straight. So just by pausing for a second and breathing in deeply, the old brain dials down the emotions a little bit and gives your new brain the freedom and clarity it needs to sort the situation using its more complex thoughts. Remember the three questions. What am I thinking? Why am I thinking it? And is it helping? Only the new brain can answer complex questions. Asking questions and answering them honestly is a great way to get the new brain reattached and steering the ship. Charlie Teo is an international renowned neurosurgeon who pioneered the use of keyhole brain surgery and minimally evasive neurosurgery. In an interview, he told the story of a particularly stressful operation. His patient was an internationally acclaimed pianist who happened to have a malignant brain tumour in the part of the brain that controls motor functions. That's not ideal if you're an international pianist. Lots of neurosurgeons were saying the operation couldn't be done. Charlie was also being interviewed by a national television network and there were cameras in the operating theatre. It was pretty stressful. During the procedure, Charlie found himself in a predicament and was losing control of the operation. Being a smart guy, he knew he had to stop and reassess the situation. So, in an attempt to find the best solution, he asked himself, what would John Wayne do? I don't like the idea of a neurosurgeon taking advice from a cowboy, but I do love the way Dr. Teo was self-aware enough to know that he was in trouble. By asking himself a question, he managed to re-engage his new brain and find a pathway out of a life-threatening situation. You don't have to be a brain surgeon to know how to keep your two brains connected. I once witnessed a great example of the new brain and old brain becoming disconnected, and I asked my daughter Chloe to write the story. Here it is. Chloe's assignment story. It was in the middle of the week and I had an English assignment due that morning. I admit, it probably wasn't the greatest idea to print it out in the morning, but that's what I decided to do. When I looked at the printout, it had cut about five words from each line of writing. The computer wouldn't let me edit it, and I had about ten minutes before my 7.15 bus left. My teacher, Mr Perry, Mad Dog Perry as we call him, was going to yell at me, and this was not good. I was panicking, I couldn't breathe, and I had about five minutes before the bus left. I yelled out for Dad to help me, and he stated the obvious that it was a stupid idea to leave it to last minute. 
He started to give me a lecture about how you should always do it the night before, which definitely didn't help, and he realised it. He told me not to worry about the bus. He would drive me to school. So that was one worry sorted. Dad held my hand and quietly told me to breathe. I didn't listen to him and continued to panic. All I could think about was how Mad Dog Perry was going to yell at me. In the car on the way to school, we did some breathing exercises and I could feel my whole body relax and start to calm down. When I was calm, Dad and I talked about how I structured the assignment and we worked out the problem together. We managed to put my assignment on a new document in the right format and turned it in online. I had heaps of time to print a hard copy for my teacher and handed everything in 10 minutes before class started. That night, Dad told me what was going on in my head and he taught me some breathing exercises to locate which parts of the brain I essentially needed to handle situations like this. When Chloe was in panic mode about, about the bus and Mr Perry's impending rant, her old brain was in charge. By breathing and consciously relaxing, she allowed the new brain to come back online and sort out her computer issues. In panic mode, she was defensive and dumb. She couldn't solve the problem and was only finding excuses. By taking the stress Teflon off-ramp, the new brain was back online and she was smart again and she solved the problem. We now know that old brain has no language. By asking questions, you have to engage your new brain. By answering the questions honestly, without rationalizations, your new brain will once again take the reins and become a better supervisor. If you were to ask a well-trained new brain, why am I thinking this? It would hopefully identify its own rationalizations and make better choices. Both Chloe and Charlie had taken the fork in the stress road that was taking them somewhere they didn't want to go. Fortunately, through mind awareness and integrating their two brains, they both managed to find a stress Teflon off-ramp and use the new brain to find solutions. Catching yourself near the fork in the stress road is a key to avoiding bad stress. Mind awareness and understand why you are thinking a certain way is the key to finding the off-ramp and integrating your two brains. On the rare occasion I have been unhappy in my marriage, it has usually been a result of me being selfish and justifying my cho poor choices by blaming my wife. It's a lot easier for, for us to blame others than it is to accept our own wrongdoing. Mind awareness will help clarify this and decrease a lot of internal conflict by increasing self-awareness and accountability. When you are faced with any situation, good or bad, your brain releases chemicals into the specific synapses, those tiny gaps between the nerve cells in the brain, to spur you into action. And when you know more about what's happening in your brain in these moments of pleasure and pain and love and pride or fear, the calmer you'll be when it happens and the better you'll be because of it. Chapter 5. Carrots and Sticks. The Chemistry of Behaviour. Happiness is when what you think, what you say, and what you do are in harmony. That was by Mahatma Gandhi. The human body is run by a system of carrots and sticks. Think of a Mexican farmer and his stubborn donkey. Our clever hombre gets the mule moving by using a stick to dangle a carrot in front of his face. The carrot is there to entice us to do something that is beneficial, and the stick is there to remind us when we don't. Stress is the stick. 
The stick has two methods of motivating us. One is to hold the carrot out in front of us to get the donkey to move. And yes, you are the donkey in the desired direction. And the other one is to hit the donkey, i.e. you, to get it moving. Stress can give us direction and it certainly gets us moving. Just think though, what would happen if to the donkey, our stick-wielding friend continued to hit it constantly? It would run aimlessly, without direction, and probably buck the sadistic hombre off. This is how Western society is using stress. It's like a stick to beat us towards a destination. And that's why stress is getting such a bad rap. We need to use stress to give us direction, to send us to the places that are beneficial and away from those that aren't. For Kronk, stress was short term, a quick tap on the ass to get him moving and then help him with direction. In the book, I have a picture of a thing called a stress curve, which is kind of like a bell curve where performance is on the y-axis and your stress levels are on the on the x-axis and it's a bell curve where the optimum zone is in the middle where you've got just the right amount of stress to give you peak performance the far left of the curve is boredom and inactivity nothing much gets done there are no challenges and it's like week five on your quiet island holiday you're bored shitless The far right of the curve is where toxic stress takes over. The donkey is battered and bloody and lying on the ground, unable to go anywhere. Yeah, sorry about the imagery there. The center of the curve where it's chilled and optimum is where the magic lies. This is where you get the best performance and you still have the ability to do more and get better. Most busy people are in this zone. They have the right type and amount of stress and they get shit done, as implied by the expression, give a busy person a job. Where are you on this curve? Are you on the far left? Do you need to fire up? You may be in a rut and need some challenges. Find some positive stress, learn a new skill, change jobs or set yourself a challenge. A lot of people will say, I'm on the right of the curve. Are you really? And if so, where is the stress generated? Is it an overload of work challenges and things that need doing, or is it new brain generated what if stresses? This is the key to becoming stress Teflon, understanding where your stress comes from and working out ways to ensure that stress is short term and productive. The sticks. What actually happens inside our body when we have a stress response? The star of the stress response is a chemical called cortisol. Cortisol is responsible for a number of brain activities, but its relationship with epinephrine or adrenaline is what produces our freeze, fight or flight response. When Kronk faced off with the tiger, you can bet he had heaps of cortisol pouring into his reactive old brain, telling him to react and react quickly. Cortisol is what sets our priorities. When you have a fight or flight response to something, cortisol ensures that you give that something your complete attention. With a tiger coming at him, Kronk was running totally on his old brain and its super fast reactions and increased strength due to cortisol and adrenaline saved the day. This is stress working at its beautiful life-changing best. You need a lot of energy to fight tigers. So in a stroke of evolutionary genius, cortisol increases your heart rate You breathe harder, which mobilizes energy and oxygen and gets them to your muscles. And all of these things are beneficial when fighting off tigers. The other part of the fight or flight response is that cortisol turns off the systems in the body that aren't needed to fight tigers. You don't need your hair to grow if you're fighting a tiger. 
You don't need your digestive system or immune systems to work. Your lunch is irrelevant when you're about to become someone else's lunch. The new brain goes offline and hands the reins over to the faster reactions of the old brain. Mathematics and logical thinking aren't needed right now. Your body's repair and maintenance system takes a break. Basically, every, everything shuts down except the things needed to either fight or run. Fight or flight is evolutionary genius in an environment where other beings are trying to kill us. Today, things are different. The tigers are in boardrooms and wear suits. The tigers are schoolyard bullies. The tigers are a threat of being homeless if you don't pay the rent. The tigers are modern fears, and most of them are generated in your new brain. What if I lose my job? What if I fail my exams? What if my new business venture fails? Kronk lived in the present. His tigers were very occasional. He dealt with them, or he became lunch and didn't play any further part in the evolutionary process. Modern tigers are a different story. If your boss ignites a huge stress response, then he is your tiger. The modern tigers are in the next office and they will be a constant source of cortisol. Because most of our modern tigers are generated in our own heads, they can be constant and pop up whenever the new brain fires up the old brain's stress response. Cortisol is a chemical. It doesn't care how it got there. It has a job to do. Shut down unnecessary systems and fire up the things we need to escape or fight. So what happens if we have increased cortisol levels in the system for too long? Things shut down. Your immune system goes offline and you get sick. Not only do you get more colds and flus, but you open yourself up to an increased risk of things like cancer. There is a scientific school of thought that cancer is a failure of the immune system to deal with the offending cancerous cells. In situations of chronic stress, your immune system goes offline and it makes sense that these cancers are not dealt with very well. It's still early days, but there is a lot of research going into immunotherapy as a cancer treatment. Your digestive system fails to work and you get things like irritable bowel syndrome. Your libido decreases. You aren't going to get horny running away from tigers. If you feel you aren't getting enough love from your partner, perhaps you need to eliminate the things you do that add stress to your partner's life. What are you doing that grinds your partner's gears or stresses her out? Stop doing it and be a bit more considerate and your partner will be more likely to get amorous. Apparently, nothing is sexier to a woman than a bloke vacuuming the house. Now, I don't want you to start worrying oh my God, I'm going to get cancer and irritable bowel syndrome and never get laid again. Stressing about stressing rarely helps. Worry, but know that worrying is about as effective as trying to solve an algebra equation by chewing bubblegum. Remember that it's only long-term chronic stress that's harmful to your health. Short-term power-boosting stress is actually beneficial. If you perceive stress as a positive thing that gets shit done, there are very few health implications from it. As Stanford scientist Kelly McGonigal says, it's not the stress that kills you, it's your perception of the stress that kills you. She cites a study that tracked 30,000 people for eight years and found that people who experienced a lot of stress in the previous year had a 43% increased risk of dying. But that was only true if the people who also believed that the stress was harmful for your health. People who experienced a lot of stress 
but did not view stress as harmful were no more likely to die. In fact, they had the lowest risk of dying of anyone in the study, including the people with relatively little stress. It goes back to what she said earlier. Chasing meaning is more beneficial than avoiding stress. Embrace the good stress and engage your new brain to rationally put the bad stress into perspective. Remember that stress as a stick also gives us direction. It moves the carrot in the direction you want to go and away from the places that will make us unsafe. Pain is the other type of stick that our body uses. If something hurts, you stop doing it. This makes sense for harmful actions like sticking your hand in a fire or walking on broken glass. But what about pain's role in our relationship with other people? Like Kronk, humans are safer, happier, and more content when in a tribe. You are more likely to obtain objective flourishing of eudaimonia when you're in your tribe, and we'll look closely at that in Chapter 7. When you are excluded from your tribe, your brain literally feels pain. It's not just your figurative heart that hurts after a breakup or a job termination. Turns out your brain feels it in a very real way. To test the theory, researchers met with subjects who had just split up from a relationship, probably our most intimate sort of tribe. Not surprisingly, they found them quite stressed and really miserable. Turns out the 60s pop song was right. Breaking up really is hard to do. It hurts. The researchers gave half their broken-hearted subjects Tylenol and a placebo to the other half. Within a few days, the people who had received the Tylenol, which is a painkiller, were a lot happier than the people who hadn't received the painkiller. Why? Because Tylenol or paracetamol works both at the site of pain and in the brain. By giving the subjects Tylenol, researchers were dulling the natural pain of being separated from your tribe and actually made people feel better. From this, it would appear as if we've evolved to do things that will keep us in our tribe. What sort of things might get us kicked out of our tribe? Usually, it's being selfish and putting ourselves before the tribe. Being an asshole is stressful. It hurts and may get you kicked out of the tribe. Our biology is telling us not to do that. The carrots. Many different chemicals are released in our bodies. These are the carrots that feel good and make us repeat desirable behavior. If you want a pigeon to walk in circles, you give it some seed every time it turns right. Pretty soon, the pigeon will be turning right and dancing circles. The carrots in our biology are the same. Something feels good and we'll do it again. Stress dangles the carrots out in front of us and takes us to the places where things feel good. Carrot number one, dopamine, your drive to thrive. The first of our feel-good chemicals is dopamine, our drive to thrive hormone. You probably won't hear about any brain chemical more than dopamine. It's the rock star of our brain because it's basically involved with everything sex, drugs, and rock and roll. What I mean is dopamine reacts in our brain during sexual arousal, drug use, particularly with cocaine, and pleasure we derive from getting something we want. Dopamine is a cue chemical, meaning it can tip us off that pleasure is coming our way. When Kronk hunted, as soon as he found his prey's trail, he got a hit of dopamine. As he got close and saw the animal, he got another hit. We get a hit of dopamine because our brain is predicting that a reward is coming. When Kronk threw his spear and killed the animal, he knew he had that night's dinner and he got a massive hit of dopamine. 
It felt great. Let's do it again tomorrow. Being our drive to thrive hormone, dopamine is responsible for making us get better at things. It keeps us focused on the prize and the promise of a dopamine hit makes us more tenacious about getting what we want. For that reason, dopamine is often associated with addiction, alcohol, gambling, work, mobile phones, sex, food, cocaine, Game of Thrones, coffee, smoking, chocolate, video games. The list is endless. They are all things that we can get addicted to and all of them recruit dopamine. Something feels good last time, I want it again. Part of our stress response is adrenaline. We all have heard about adrenaline junkies, people who love extreme sports, jump out of perfectly good planes or surf massive waves. They all have a love of adrenaline and the cue chemical dopamine is the one that tells them that it's on its way. It's addictive. Do you love it when deadlines are approaching and you get fired up to get shit done? Is the new brain generated drama in your life something you are actually addicted to? Is the combination of adrenaline and dopamine making you move from one drama to the next? By understanding dopamine addiction, integrating the two brains and practicing mind awareness, we can use the drive to thrive hormone for good rather than becoming a slave to it. Scientists in Cambridge University and the University of Nottingham looked at the problem of gambling. They discovered that a near miss, four out of five on a slot machines, produced more dopamine than actually winning money. Game designers understand this and deliberately put in more near misses to give people the cue chemical dopamine and keep them feeling good and at the game longer. When it comes to gambling, dopamine can be a problem. For Kronk, the drive to thrive hormone was what kept him practicing his hunting skills as a young man. Every time he nearly got a bird, he got a, a feel-good hit of dopamine to make him keep practicing. Without dopamine, he would never have become the great hunter he was, and humans would never have thrived. Dopamine is great, but it's addictive and it needs to be kept in check. It's a short-term feel-good hit that needs to get another one straight after. Hit your sales target, you get a bigger sales target. Got a good job, you want a better job. Got good grades, you want to get better grades. Dopamine is productive and essential, but it never fully satisfies. It's a bit like Chinese food. An hour after a big meal, you're hungry again. Dopamine feels good and makes us happy in the short term. The problem is, is, if you attach happiness to results, you will never truly get there. As Harvard positive psychologist Sean Accor says, if happiness is on the opposite side of success, your brain never gets there. We've pushed happiness over the cognitive horizon as a society, and that's because we think we have to be successful, then we will be happier. To achieve eudaimonia, you have to choose to be happy first and success will follow. Don't let happiness be something that relies on ticking all your dopamine boxes. There will always be more boxes and happiness will forever stay just over the horizon. Carrot 2. Serotonin. Your pride from inside. Serotonin is your pride from inside hormones. There are few things better than taking a shot of serotonin to the brain. This is the chemical that you get anytime you do something well. It's a feeling of pride and makes you feel good about being yourself and makes you feel like a valuable member of your tribe. Scoring the winning goal, nailing the presentation at work and making a group of friends laugh, anything that gives you a warm, fuzzy feeling inside is actually being influenced by serotonin. It feels like weeing in a wetsuit. 
Every surfer knows the winter joy of peeing in a wetsuit. It feels great. Standing on the top step of an Olympic medal ceremony or getting a Nobel Prize would be a great source of pride. And at these times, the winners are euphoric and are so proud of themselves. Have you ever noticed their speeches are always about who got them there? I couldn't have done this without my coach, my husband, my mum, my team, they all say. The camera moves over to the coach, head tilted to one side, big smile, nodding and looking as proud as punch. That's serotonin. It feels great and all it requires is that you do something you're proud of. You can't achieve eudaimonia without serotonin. To objectively flourish, you have to feel proud of yourself and like being you. Pride from inside is the key to eudaimonia. And it's an essential piece of the stress Teflon puzzle. When I wanted to have a closer look at serotonin, I thought I'd talk to someone who was intimate with serotonin and the pride from inside that comes from achieving great things. I had a chat to Robbie McEwen. Robbie is one of Australia's best known cyclists and has travelled the world winning three Tour de France green jerseys and loads of other major races. If anyone could give me an insight into getting to the top of the tree and being proud of their achievement, it would be Robbie. When I asked Robbie which wins in his cycling career he was most proud of, he thought for a while and told me two stories. In the 2005 Tour de France at stage 13, Robbie found himself in the peloton, nine minutes behind a breakaway of five strong riders. As they came out of the mountains, he'd already won a couple of stages on the tour, so when he and his teammates realised the breakaway was a long way ahead, Robbie said to them, I feel good, but it's up to you. We don't have to catch them if you don't want to. Despite being tired, his lotto teammates decided that they wanted the win and they worked their collective butts off to get it. They dragged the entire peloton, including Robbie, who rode safely tucked in behind them and caught the last two riders of the breakaway with 200 metres to go. Showing his usual cunning and freakish acceleration, Robbie's last remaining teammate, Freddie Rodriguez, took the last left-hander nice and wide and gave Robbie a clear view of the finish line. If he was good enough, he would win the sprint. He was. I was a few metres out from the line and I wanted to see if anyone was on my wheel because I was actually going to let Freddie cross the line first, Robbie said. Freddie was spent and Robbie won the stage. Usually at the end of a stage, a rider leaves the finishing area to deal with the media and hydrate before going off to celebrate atop the podium. After finishing this race, though, Robbie stayed close to the finish line to welcome in all his teammates. There were hugs and maybe even a few tears. And although the record books show it was Robbie McEwen who won, he knows it was actually his team. The second most memorable win was in the 2007 Tour de France in Stage 1. He crashed with 20 kilometres to go. His entire team waited for him as the peloton raced off into the distance. Bruised and battered and bleeding, he got back on the bike and rejoined his waiting teammates. With Robbie safely behind him, the team pinned back the years and started the difficult chase to catch the peloton. They caught the peloton and Robbie hid in the pack until the last few hundred metres where he once again sprinted to claim the stage win. What struck me most after talking to Robbie is that both of his memorable wins were not so much to do with him, but to do with how good his team was. It shows us the power of being part of a group and how it is so much more important than individual accomplishments. 
Talk talk about Robbie's passion. He he still had shivers up the spine when he recounted the Herculean efforts his teammates did. He loves talking about how several several of his teammates had ten to fifteen year careers and earned truckloads of money, but were names not even diehard cyclists could readily recount. He was the star, but he attributes his biggest wins of his career to his teammates and the pride of his team. Serotonin needs other people and is the reason why team pride feels better than personal pride. Fortunately, you don't have to win Olympic gold, Tour de France stages or Nobel Prizes to get serotonin. You just have to do something you are proud of. One day, I was driving to the gym and was stopped at a set of traffic lights. An elderly gentleman with a walking stick and a bag of KFC was walking diagonally through the intersection. Lost and disorientated, he stopped in the middle of the lights and looked around, unsure of which way to go. The lights were about to go green, and I was very concerned that the old guy would get run over. My lane got a green light, and I drove around him to block any cars coming the other way. When I inquired if he was okay, he looked at me with a tear in his eye and said, no, mate, I'm, I'm a little bit lost. Jump in, mate, I said, I'll get you home. And with that, he got in the car and breathed a big sigh of relief. We got out of the intersection and found a safe place to park. It turns out his name was Jack, and he had gone out for lunch to get lunch for himself and his wife about four hours earlier. Coming out of KFC, he had turned right instead of left and had been walking all of that time. Fortunately, Jack knew his address. We drove the six kilometres back to his house and finally delivered lunch to his very hungry wife. Jack and I had a great chat in the car, and I was really glad that I could help. This one little act of kindness felt great. I was flooded with serotonin's pride from inside and felt great because I had helped someone. Why don't we do these things more often? They feel fantastic. Hold the door open for someone, help a struggling mum get the pram in the car, or let people go in front of you in traffic. These things are all sources of serotonin. They make you happier about what sort of person you are, pride from inside. We should all be doing more things like this. Both serotonin and dopamine feel great. The big difference between them is that you can't get serotonin by yourself. To truly get pride from inside, you need other people. Robbie's greatest wins weren't about him. They were about the team. In fact, you don't even need to do anything. You get serotonin from seeing other members of your tribe succeed. The joy you feel when your daughter gets her diploma that's serotonin. Your son hits a home run. That's serotonin. A novice staff member uses her newfound knowledge to help a customer. You both get serotonin and it feels awesome. I recently caught up with my friend Alan Hopkins. Within seconds, he was telling me about his eldest son, David, who had played guitar and sung at the school concert the night before. Hoppy pulled out his phone and played me part of the performance. It sounded great. But what I loved was how excited and proud Hoppy was of his son. I got a little hint of serotonin too. Serotonin is contagious and you get it by doing things and being part of your tribe, just like Kronk. Carrot 3. Oxytocin, your tend and befriend hormone. Some call it the love drug, while others, including me, refer to it as your tend and befriend hormone. Oxytocin is the carrot that feels good when we have physical contact with people that we care about. Get a hug from your mum, you get oxytocin. Footballers hug 
after they score a goal. That's oxytocin and a bit of serotonin and pride. It's why we shake hands at the end of a deal negotiation. It creates bonds. Childbirth would be horrendously painful, but the massive hit of oxytocin a mother receives when she first holds her baby nullifies the pain when the new mum bonds with her child. You get a flood of oxytocin when you have an orgasm. Remember, evolution ensures the carrots make us repeat things that feel good. How often would you have sex and therefore reproduce if an orgasm found like slamming your genitals in a car door? The species would have been extinct years ago. Oxytocin helps us feel safe. It reduces anxiety and lets us know when we belong. We look at oxytocin as a carrot that brings people together and creates bonds with people we care about. But there's a couple of different sides to it. Oxytocin is actually part of your stress response. From an evolutionary point of view, in times of danger, it makes us want to, want to be close to the people we care about. Oxytocin creates bonds between people and generally makes us feel safe. Men who have been to a war together have a bond that lasts a lifetime, thanks to your tender befriend carrot. Stress can bring people together. A number of years ago, I went scuba diving and I'd never done it before. And I did a little one-day course in the pool at the hotel and went out to the Great Barrier Reef. There's beautiful coral everywhere. We were just 10 or 15 metres underwater swimming along in a group of about five or six, and I looked up and saw a reef shark. I knew what a reef shark was, and I knew they don't typically attack people. But this was a shark. This was a big shark. It was way bigger than me and had big, sharp teeth, and I'm pretty sure if he wanted to attack me, I would have been proper fucked. But I found myself swimming over to the instructor and staying shoulder to shoulder with him. I was scared because I was in uncharted territory, with sharks no less, but as soon as I had the physical touch, even though it was through a wetsuit, I calmed down immediately. Oxytocin is part of the stress response and part of that stress relief. I used to be of the opinion that people who blamed their fucked up mental health on their parents or their childhood were full of shit and should just get over it. It was history. When we began talking about neural pathways, I realized how wrong I was. If, like me, you were brought up in a loving, caring environment, your tendon befriend hormone work as they're designed. And they bring you closer to the people in your tribe to help you deal with a stressful situation. If your memories aren't positive, oxytocin release can have a negative effect, making love, relationship and bonding really difficult. In the 80s, just after the end of the Cold War, reporters discovered that orphanages in Romania had been run in such a way as to limit physical touch to the children there. Because they had been denied much love and affection, the majority of the orphans had never experienced the positive sensation that oxytocin causes. Their tiny body had produced oxytocin, but they didn't get the physical touch that made them feel safe. To them, oxytocin was not something that made them feel safe. It reminded them of being alone and vulnerable. So they actually had an adverse reaction to touch or any attempt to bond with them that caused an oxytocin release. When their neural pathways were being created, they may have reached out for love and caring, but didn't get that love and attention. If we cast our mind back to chapter 3 and think of our neural pathways as tracks in the sand dunes, the Romanian orphans had pathways and memories that equated oxytocin only with sadness. In this case, oxytocin, as part of the stress response, sent them completely the other way, 
pushing them away from people and from love to somewhere much darker. They had no association between the tendon befriend hormone and feeling safe. Some confronted their discomfort through consistent and controlled exposure therapy, but the fact that they still struggled with the number of psychological deficiencies led researchers to understand more about the importance of brain chemicals like oxytocin in stimulating the brain to develop healthy, normal relationships. Your tendon befriend hormone is a positive carrot that makes most people closer and the tribe better. Carrot four, GABA. Calm and disarm. Then there's GABA, or GABA aminobutyric acid for the nerds. That strange sounding goop that actually is an amino acid and is your calm and disarm carrot. GABA is a neurosuppressor, which means that it's a natural calming agent released in the central nervous system to suppress nervous transmissions and thereby reduce nervousness. You may see bottles of GABA for sale in your local health food store, typically advertising it as some sort of all-natural tranquilizer. Whereas adrenaline is your accelerator, GABA is your brakes. Exercises like Tai Chi, yoga, and meditation all have the effect of releasing GABA. I like to think of GABA as being like a fire extinguisher that can cover the brain with calm, cooling foam and put out any number of brain-generated sprot fires. Breathing is the key to releasing it, and you can do it consciously. In times of intense emotions, all it takes is a bit of vertical integration between your old and new brains and breathing deliberately. Your new brain can generate fires, but it can also put them out. Your calm and disarm chemicals help put fires out. Don't worry, I know that's a lot to remember, so I've crafted a handy cheat sheet, rhymes and all, for you to help retain all you need to know about brain chemicals. Adrenaline and cortisol are your fight and flight hormones. Dopamine is your drive to thrive. Serotonin is your pride from inside. You can tend and befriend with oxytocin, and when you want to calm and disarm, you need GABA. Chapter 6, Stress Induces. In her book, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway, Susan Jeffers said, If you knew you could handle anything that came your way, what would you possibly have to fear? The answer is nothing. Do you think Kronk would have had a fear of tigers? Absolutely. They have massive teeth, big claws, and can run really fast. Kronk, like us, had small teeth, tiny nails, and soft skin that was nowhere near as fast. Kronk would have been shit scared of tigers, and so he should be. Let's think for a moment about how Kronk would have handled his fears when he had an encounter with a hungry tiger. Obviously, it was a really stressful moment, and it's likely that he would have had the same initial reaction any of us would have had in the same circumstances. His heart rate would have been racing, his breathing would have quickened, and a sense of urgent panic would have spread throughout his body. He would have been scared but he would have used only his old brain to react. Everything he did in that moment would have been on instinct. 100% old brain. He wouldn't have thought anything through. He wouldn't have done exactly what he had to do to kill the tiger and protect him and his tribe. But as soon as he'd killed the tiger, the stress would have gone away. He would have breathed deeply and celebrated his victory with all of his tribe, embracing and hugging the people around him. He would have hugged his fellow hunters and said, fuck me, we just got attacked by a tiger. 
Embracing others and breathing deeply provides a trigger that tells your old brain to calm and disarm. It's the cue to stop producing adrenaline and cortisol and to cease the fight or flight response. Surviving a really stressful situation gives us great pride and a massive hit from all our feel-good carrots. It's like the old saying says that whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Caveman stresses are obvious to see and have a beginning and an end. Conquering our fears builds our pride in yourself and becomes the foundations of self-belief. Eleanor Roosevelt said, you gain strength, courage and confidence by every experience in which you really stop to look fear in the face. You are able to say to yourself, I lived through this horror, I can take the next thing that comes along. We have stress so that if we are attacked by a tiger, we react quickly to ensure our survival. Stress saved Kronk, and it saves us from many things we face in our lives. But as we keep saying, stress is designed to be really short-term and intermittent. Fear is our main stress inducer, and almost all fears come back to one general fear, fear that we can't handle a particular situation. A feeling of being overwhelmed is a type of stress that sparks the fear that we can't handle the situation. Having a lot of balls in the air can be overwhelming and make you feel like you can't handle a situation. You can. You just need to stay rational, keep your two brains connected, and find creative ways to solve the problem. Being overwhelmed is your cue to ask for help. The stress response of, over, of oxytocin tells us to look for people to help. Listen to your own reward system and ask people for help. What if and red splats. A mate of mine is afraid of heights. I get nervous on thick pile carpet, he told me once. He's really afraid of heights. Somehow, his 14-year-old son conned him into abseiling down a high-rise building in the centre of town. So there he was, high on a ledge, 20 stories up, and he was absolutely freaking out while his son was calm as a cucumber. My mate turned to his son and says, you're not even nervous. Why aren't you worried about this? To which his son replies, dad, come over here. And they go over to the edge of the building and look down. People have been abseiling down this building all day to raise money for charity. And my mate, still petrified, manages to look over the edge. His son said to him, people have been doing this all day. They've raised thousands of dollars. 50 people have done this before us. Look down at the bottom. Do you see any red splats on the pavement? He looked over the railing, gazed at the site below for a moment. No, there were no red splats. These people know what they're doing. All we've got to do is climb down the rope and we'll be fine. Suddenly, it made him calm down and he was okay. He realised that the tiger he had created in his head was actually only in his head. He knew they had safety procedures. He knew what to do. He just had to use his new brain to calm and disarm his old brain. Then he'd be able to think rationally and function well. As soon as he thought rationally, he realised everything was safe and professional and they would be fine. Together, they abseiled down the face of the building to the ground and they celebrated my mate's conquest over his biggest fear. That story is an example of how we develop our own tigers. They are new brain-generated fears. All of them stem from the fear that we can't handle the situation. We almost always can. How many red splat fears, fear that something might happen, do you have in your life? 
The psychiatrist Robert Lee describes this type of thinking as what ifing. He cites a study in which scientists got subjects to list the things that they were worried about and then looked at the number of these imagined calamities that, that eventuated. They came up with a number, 85%. This means that only one in every seven of your red splats actually happen. Even more telling than that, the study also showed that for the 15% of things that actually did happen to the participants, 80% of them handled the situations better than I expected and looked at the situation as a lesson worth learning. This means that only one in 33 of your worries actually are going to happen and affect your life in a negative way. With stats like that, how much what-ifing now seems pretty unproductive. If you stop and engage your new brain and ensure the vertical integration that we talked about in Chapter 3, you really engage your brain's supervisor. It can release GABA, which will have a calming effect on the old brain. Fear rears its ugly, stress-inducing head in so many ways. Fear of failure, fear of change are two particularly insidious stress inducers that stop people from achieving eudaimonia. Both of these two fears are capable of turning talented, creative and motivated people into apathetic sheep that never leave their comfort zone. Mind awareness is a great way to identify your fears that may be holding you back. If you are truly honest when you answer the questions, why are you thinking, dot, 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 in terms of fear, you will invariably get to the root of your fear. Disappointment. If you align expectations with reality, you will never be disappointed. That's from Tyrell Owens, the NFL champion. Disappointment is a major stress inducer in a number of ways. The most obvious one is when people let you down. It's not unrealistic to have expectations of people, and when they fail to live up to them, it's stressful. If you, if you feel let down, unimportant, and unappreciated, how much of those negative emotions are the fault of your expectations and are placing your priorities on someone else? Parents get stressed yelling at their children for many things, such as not cleaning their rooms. Whether they realize it or not, the source of that stress is often the parents' own expectations. They think their children should have more respect, looked after their things, and keep a room tidy. It's a parent's job to, to teach kids good habits. If doing so causes fights, stress, and friction in the family, perhaps the parents need to find a different, more effective way to get their point across. By staying rational, you are more likely to, to find a solution than the confrontation and yelling. Road rage is a great example of disappointment causing stress and firing up the old brain and causing calm, rational people to lose their shit. We all know the road rules and we all have an expectation that everyone else will follow them. When the Muppet in front of you is too, too busy texting on his phone to notice the traffic lights have gone green, you are well within your rights to yell abuse at them and let your old brain give them a spray. But does it really matter if that drive, driver's inattention makes you two minutes late? Probably not. Put that stuff in perspective. It's not the end of the world. Similarly, dangerous drivers really fire up your old brain. Cars can kill people. And young kids weaving in and out of traffic in hotted up cars with their hats on backwards can cause the old brain reaction that is designed to keep us alive in the jungle. The new brain coming in and throwing fuel on the fire probably doesn't help, but that's what a lot of people do. 
Use your new brain for good and decrease the rage, not fuel it. Not meeting your own expectations, letting yourself down and being even bigger stress inducers. I have a line I often use, no one disappoints me like I disappoint myself. I say it as a joke, often after doing something stupid or when waking up after a big night, but disappointments are usually just funny or embarrassing and don't really cause too much stress. Anytime I attempt a DIY project, those, those feelings will almost invariably pop up. When I do a good DIY job, it's like a blind squirrel finding an acorn and it feels great. But overall, I full-heartedly admit that I'm crap at DIY. My wife calls me Bob the Breaker, and it will take four holes to hang one picture, and even then I can guarantee it won't be straight. But I don't let things that I'm crap at define me. Thankfully, I'm good at other things, and my faulty DIY gene is one of those crap things about me that I accepted years ago. The family still gets nervous when the tools come out, though. Imagine a work situation in which one of your employees failed to do something he or she was responsible for and your company lost a big contract. You would be upset and disappointed. Your natural response would be to tear five shades of shit out of the staff member who fucked up. Yelling and screaming won't help much, but that's what a lot of bosses do. Losing your shit at a staff member rarely helps. It creates a stressful environment, and we know that when, when stressed people become defensive and dumb. Hardly a good way to navigate a difficult situation. It's just not effective. Initially, losing your temper might feel, feel good because you get the frustration out, but after the dust settles, you reflect on your actions and you always feel disappointed that you didn't handle the situation better. Flipping your lid, losing your shit, and separating your two brains is a great way to, to create stress from regret. The problem is that disappointment and regret are useless, stressful emotions and they don't achieve much. By integrating old and new brains, you can prevent your mistakes and hopefully learn from them uh, when they occur. Learning from mistakes can decrease the stress hormones you are generating and can even create some pride from inside that will help you stop beating yourself up. Karen, my wife, started smoking in a church retreat at the age of 13. Like all new teenage smokers, she coughed and spluttered her way through her first few ciggies. She persisted because the opportunity to feel grown up was worth the bad breath and the threat of lung cancer. This was the 80s in Ireland and everyone smoked. um, People smoked in pubs and in their houses and there were even smoking sections in planes. 20 years later, times have changed. The health effects of smoking are now conclusive and has become socially taboo to blow smoke near, near just about anyone. Fortunately, pregnancy and a new baby had kept her off the butts for over a year, but somehow she managed to get back on the cancer sticks, and before she knew it, she was a smoker again. She was massively disappointed in herself, and in spite of me busting her chops about it, she continued to smoke for a few more years. The penny finally dropped when she gave up the cancer sticks once and for all, largely because she was sick of disappointing herself and beating herself up for doing something she knew was unhealthy and setting a bad example for our daughter. As of now, she hasn't smoked in over four years and she ranks giving up smoking is one of the things that she's most proud of. Poor health. As we discussed in Chapter 2, Rags' health scare induced a lot of stress for a lot of people. Remember, stress is there to keep us alive. It directs us away from things that hurt 
and towards things that feel good. The hassle with modern life is there are heaps of things that feel great but aren't so good for you. Chocolate, fast food, alcohol and drugs all stimulate the production of dopamine and feel good at the time. As we've heard, these things can be quite addictive and are often the cause of many of our health problems. The recent epidemics in diabetes, obesity and depression can at least in part be attributed to chronic bad stress. We now know that cortisol shuts down unnecessary systems in the body, but the other part of the fight-or-flight response is what it does to sugar, insulin and fat. When Kronk saw a tiger, his heart rate went up, he breathed, breathing quickened, and his liver put extra sugar in the bloodstream to give him the energy and strength that needed to fight or run. Sounds like a good system, right? It worked for Kronk. What about our modern new brain-generated chronic stress? It has the same chemical process going on. The only problem is we aren't running anywhere or fighting anyone, so the sugar that was made available to run or fight doesn't get used. What happens to this extra sugar in the bloodstream? It gets stored as fat, usually near the liver as abdominal fat. Stress, sugar and fat, the vicious cycle. The stress hormone cortisol signals the liver to liberate glucose stores. To fight or flee, the body needs energy and cortisol gets our body ready for action. In the past, those sugars would have been used to run or fight. Today, the stresses rarely require any physical movement and eventually the increased sugar in the system will be a signal for the pancreas to make more insulin. The liver doesn't detect sugars but it does react to insulin by removing the sugar from the bloodstream, converting it to fat and storing it nearby. This causes abdominal fat and is the reason why a lot of people who suffer from chronic stress are overweight and have higher incidence of diabetes. Chronic stress makes most people crave bad food. No one has ever come home from a hard day at work and excitedly said, I really need some celery sticks and a portion control of fat-free hummus. Stress makes us want fat, sugar and junk food. You need energy to fight your stress tigers. The hassle with these foods is that they are going into a system that has high sugar levels due to the cortisol. High-calorie stress foods then fuel the stress, sugar, insulin, fat loop, which is why a lot of Westerners are overweight. Graham Bendike was an athlete, a coach, and a businessman. Somewhere in his mid-40s, the businessman part of his life started to dominate. 14-hour days, high-stakes deals, and long lunches saw his slight frame balloon out to over 100, 100 kilos or 220 pounds. He was unfit. There was no time to exercise, and he was not feeling too good about himself. Business was thriving, but he didn't have eudaimonia. He didn't have balance, and he wasn't happy. Around this time, he stopped and had a look at his life. What would I pay to be 75 kilos again, he said. This one question got his new brain thinking. He came up with a number, $1 million. He would pay a million dollars to weigh 75 kilograms again. That's how important it was to him. Graham decided to step away from the parts of his business that took up a lot of his time and caused a lot of chronic stress. It cost him a lot of money but it was worth it. Within six months, he was back down to his fighting weight and his life had balance again. Stress and posture. It may sound strange, but stress has some really close ties to our posture. There's actually a two-way link between your brain and your body. 
which researchers have begun to correlate with an increase in anxiety disorders in children. Don't believe me? Let's say you're in the jungle and you're in a life with life and death threats all around you. You would get small and hide and protect yourself. You'd pull your elbows in, you'd pull your knees up to your chest, and you'd get somewhere safe and you'd hide, which is a natural response. It's what little kids do if they get scared. If you watch little kids, they'll go into a corner and make themselves as small as they can when they're afraid or upset. Dogs will do the same thing. If you come in with a big, powerful voice, and you say to your dog, you just shat on the rug, the dog will go down and get small. The dog has no idea what shat on the rug means. He just knows that you're pissed and wants out of your way. It's a natural response and it's part of our freeze response to get small. Researchers are even discovering that because kids are spending so much time on their phones, their posture and their body language is actually telling them that they're under threat because their posture is shrunken. If you imagine being on your phone, you tuck your elbows into your chest, you lean your head forward and you bring your hands close to your face. Their body language inadvertently takes a defensive position, which triggers an anxiety response in their brain. Remember that we've got a two-way reaction between our body and our brains. That posture you adapt when you hunch over and bring your elbows in close to look at your phone all the time is actually causing your old brain to feel vulnerable and nervous as if you are weak, powerless and under threat. What they're noticing though is if you can get kids or anyone for that matter to sit up straight, move away from their computers periodically, pull their shoulders back and open their bodies up, their brain doesn't produce those anxiety-based hormones and they feel much better and more at ease throughout the day. I recently met someone who is an expert in this area. Dr. Arnie Rubenstein has dedicated his life to studying adolescent development. He's a part-time ER doctor and a full-time advocate for children. He serves as the founder and CEO of the Making of Men organization. He's a counselor and the author of the popular book, The Making of Men, Raising Boys to Be Healthy, Happy, and Successful. He has real concern that kids are being prescribed antidepressants around the age 9 or 10. This is horrific. Arnie suggests common sense approach to combating the use of drugs on children. Take their devices away from them and make them go outside and play. Doing so makes them use their muscles, burn up the nervous energy and stimulates their mind in a much more balanced way than it does sitting in front of an artificial stimulant like a TV or a computer or phone. Just by being physically active, children are getting their body to say, no, I'm bigger, I'm stronger, I'm not under threat. And that simple sense of control and safety helps them think more clearly and develop psychologically and physically in a much more balanced way. In times of stress, I love the idea that posture can actually influence your brain's reaction. I do a thing I call be big and breathe. I sit up tall, shoulders back, arms out, and have a few really big, deep breaths. By being big and breathing, your body is telling your brain that it's not under threat, the stress isn't going to harm or kill you, and that you're okay. It turns off your cortisol response, your HPA axis, and allows your new brain to calm your old brain and and to calm and disarm your stress response. It turns off all of that stress response because you can't stand in front of a tiger, put your arms out wide, and be big and brave. It's just not going to happen. If you're creating your own tigers in the head, 
the way to deal with them is by stretching out. That's why things like yoga are so good. In yoga, you spend a lot of time stretching and making yourself longer. Tai Chi also involves a lot of those stretches. You're breathing in really deeply. What that tells your brain is that you're not under threat. You couldn't stand in the jungle with lions all around and do Tai Chi. But in our modern world, it's using that two-way connection between the mind and the body to tell your brain that you're big, you're strong, you're okay. Kids hunkering over an iPad are indirectly telling themselves that they're small, vulnerable, and under threat. Simply put, what you do with your posture actually tells your brain how you should react. That's why practices such as mind awareness exercise that focus on stopping, breathing deeply, stretching, and telling your brain that you're okay are so helpful in turning off your stress response. If you're playing a violent or scary video game, for instance, you are triggering the same stress response that would be triggered if you're under real threat. Try it and then give a minute to stretch and breathe and stay quiet. You just can't be that stressed when you do. So once again, be big and breathe. The first half of this book has been about how we've evolved and how we tick. We now have an idea of why we have stress and why we need it. It's not the big bad devil it's portrayed to be. It's, it's there to fire us up and to give us direction. There will always be a fork in the stress road and it's up to us to make sure we go down the one that helps us get shit done and makes things better. The other road only has grief and ulcers and will, will make you walk around head down kicking stones. We now understand the concepts of new brain and old brain and where our stress is generated. Remember that most of the bad stress we feel originates from either fear or disappointment and integrating your new brain to solve problems rather than create them will get you a long way along the road to attaining eudaimonia. Now we've done the groundwork, it's time to explore section two and become stress Teflon. <laughs>